Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. On today's pod, we'll be talking to Robin Edger, the Executive Director and CEO of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, uh, or CAPE. Um, They have released a fascinating new report uh, last week with 25 recommendations for government investments and regulatory changes to put us on the path to meeting our 2030 and 2050 emissions reductions target. This is a really timely report. Uh, They rightly point out that the recovery effort from COVID-19 is quite likely to be the biggest stimulus package since the Second World War and perhaps presents a generational opportunity to make that investment count towards combating climate change. So we are so excited to dig into what that could look like here in Ontario and especially how our healthcare system could evolve how our healthcare system could evolve to meet our climate goals, um, which is not an impact that we actually dive into uh, in the public discourse on this issue quite a bit. So Robin, uh, welcome to the pod. Uh, thanks for having me guys. Uh, so delighted to have you. Um, so maybe just starting off a little bit with CAPE as an organization. I must admit, when I saw the report for the first time, physicians are not the first people to come to mind when you think about talking about the environmental movement. Um, so wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your organization, its mission, and you know maybe why physicians um, or the group of physicians that you represent feel like it's important to have an organization in this space. Sure, happy to. So here at CAPE, we're a physician-directed, member-based national environmental NGO, which focuses on research and advocacy on the intersection of environmental health and human health. Because we know that the health of our environment profoundly affects our health. The, the World Health Organization calls climate change the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. And it's already impacting us in Canada, whether it's uh, injuries and deaths from extreme weather events and the related mental health impacts from loss of property to the increases in heat stroke and heat-related deaths that we've had to increases in vector-borne diseases like Lyme disease that are carried by ticks that can now survive in a warmer Canada. Uh, And beyond that, we know that our air quality profoundly affects our health. Uh, The federal government estimates over 14,000 premature deaths per year in Canada are linked to air pollution, whether from lung cancer or respiratory illnesses or cardiovascular diseases. So air pollution is uh, particularly strongly linked to asthma, particularly in children. So, you know, the good news is our air quality is within our control. Uh, And for our healthy recovery report that we're going to dig into We worked with environmental economists to determine that if Canada implements our plan and hits our climate targets, we would save approximately 112,000 lives in Canada due to air quality improvements alone between 2030 and 2050, which is about the population of Waterloo. So that's why our doctors uh, care about environmental health and why we focus on it. Uh, That's great. Thank you. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more just kind of level set before we get into the specifics just in case our audience is not totally up to speed about how Canada is doing right now with, you know, its climate commitments and how basically the existing policies that Canada has put in place are working. Could you like walk us through some of that? Absolutely. So under the Paris Agreement, the Canadian government committed to reducing our emissions by about a third by 2030. In the last election, the Liberals further committed that Canada would be net zero by 2050. So we can judge our progress through Uh, the National Inventory Report. The federal government uh, produces each year collecting emissions data from across the country and across various sectors. This process takes more than a year to complete. So our recent numbers, um, our most recent numbers are from 2018. And in that year, our emissions increased by 2% from the previous year, which indicates that obviously we're still moving in the wrong direction. Uh, When you dig into those numbers though, it turns out that this is mainly due to a 6% increase in emissions in Ontario 
uh, after years of declining emissions here. So, you know, it's not a coincidence that 2018 was the year Premier Ford was elected and immediately slashed cap and trade. Um, the federal carbon price backstop wasn't implemented until 2019. So some of the emissions gains were just because of that. Uh, and then a significant portion of the emissions here in Ontario was uh, just a spike in the homes and building sector, which is mainly due to, due to using natural gas for heating. Um, we know Ford also slashed the programs helping people and businesses uh, install smart thermometers and energy efficient furnaces uh, or switching to electric heat pumps or geothermal heating. So some of the emissions gains were just because of that. Um, and then we also saw a spike in transportation emissions as Ford slashed electric vehicle rebates and uh, slashed all spending on charging infrastructure. Um, and then, you know, very worryingly, our electricity generation emissions also increased sharply um, as Ford slashed and canceled over 750 renewable energy projects, which also cost the Ontario government $230 million and, you know, countless jobs. So, you know, mo most of the key parts of the federal plan were actually implemented in 2019. Um, from the national price on pollution to the national phase out of electricity generation from coal uh, to the regulations that reduce uh, methane emissions in the oil and gas sector. So we don't quite have the data yet to assess how much impact they're having. But what we do know is, you know, at least as of 2018, we were on track to miss our 2030 emissions target by about 162 annual megatons of greenhouse gases, even taking into account the future impacts of the federal policies the government had announced but not yet implemented. So that means that we still need to find an additional, um, you know, through new investments or policies, an additional amount uh, equal to about double our emissions from personal vehicles just to hit our 2030 target. So we've got some work to do, but it's absolutely within our reach to hit our targets and our report provides that roadmap for the federal government on uh, how to do just that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I want to uh, talk about Premier Ford uh, for a moment here and the report recommendations. I was hoping we could start with maybe, let's say Premier Ford listens to this podcast, which I'm sure he does, reaches out to you and says, okay, what can we do right here in Ontario? What could a uh, provincial government do? Because a lot of these recommendations are focused at the federal government. What would you, what would be on your briefing note that you give him? What would be the uh, things that you would uh, think a foreign government could conceivably move forward on in this climate? You know, that, that was the frame we approached um, dealing with the Ford government when they first came in. But over time, we've sort of realized that trying to come up with environmental policies or investments that the Ford government might be in favor of is a fool's errand. Premier Ford is ideologically committed to making climate change worse from, you know, and we've seen these actions. He, they canceled cap and trade. They launched an expensive legal challenge to the federal pollution price, uh, even though we know that the vast majority of households get back more in the rebate than they pay, except for those who live in big drafty mansions or drive big SUVs. Um, the Ford government canceled basically every environmental program they could get their hands on, whether it was regulations or investments. And of course, the problem is governments who want to fight climate change, they only have those three levers, really. They can put a price on pollution, they can implement environmental regulations, or they, they can make investments. Um, either in consumer rebates or infrastructure. Uh, and the Ford government has made quite clear that they oppose all three of these types of measures. Um, so, you know, over time, I've decided to believe them. <laughs> so that, that kind of means there's nothing left. Uh, so our, our recommendations of the report, as you say, are focused on what the federal government can do. Uh, in many cases, uh, in combination with provinces, but in places like Ontario, it would be, you know, despite opposition from the provincial government, uh, and when I, when I wrote the section on 
sustainable transportation. I think I particularly was thinking of Ontario, both because transportation is our highest emitting sector, uh, but also because it's the sector that is such an important employer. Now, auto manufacturing jobs have obviously declined in recent years. Um, you'll remember when GM almost entirely shut down its Oshawa operation. They said it was because they were shifting their concentration to electric vehicles and AI, uh, and we don't do that here. So if Ontario continues to be flat-footed, we're at risk of losing this major pillar of our economy as the market rapidly shifts towards EV adoption. Uh, so in our Healthy Recovery Report, we recommend investments in new electric vehicle manufacturing facilities and uh, retrofitting existing facilities so they can begin to manufacture electric vehicles. Um, and then as, as, as well, we need investments to create jobs in the rest of the supply chain, um, including batteries. So the point is to start getting ahead of the curve rather than just kind of wait around for the inevitable decline of the fossil fuel vehicles we make here. Uh, and we've seen that as auto manufacturers shift to electric vehicles, they ramp up production at their facilities that are already making EVs. Uh, but they shut down the others. So it's crucial to get out ahead of this. And one way to do so, actually, interestingly, is to support the early adoption of electric vehicles here, too. Uh, about 80% of electric vehicles are made where they're sold. So if we can ramp up sales through uh, whether it's you know purchase incentives or building out electric charging stations, if we can ramp up sales and early adoptions, well, uh, we can also support new jobs in this sector. Um, and also, we've we've recommended... Uh, adopting a national EV sales mandate, which requires automakers to sell a certain percentage of EVs and then uh, ramp up that percentage over time. And we've seen that uh, be basically the most effective measure you can take to ramp up EV sales. Um, and BC uh, and Quebec already have this. Wondering if we could, if you could pick up on the piece you just mentioned at the end about the sort of a national mandate around uh, EV sales. Is that something that you think falls within federal jurisdiction that they could do? Um, and is what's sort of the counter argument? Why hasn't that been pursued as part of like the federal plan so far? So it, it's not totally clear that it actually fits within federal jurisdiction. I think we'll know more once the uh, uh, price on pollution case winds its way completely through the courts and we get the Supreme Court decision back. We'll have a sense uh, through that decision how broad or how narrow uh, the the Fed's power over uh, the environment is. There are a lot of you know good arguments in both directions, but until we have that decision and we can look at uh, that language, we won't actually have a sense of whether or not uh, the Feds could do that. We know that in their last mandate, they tried to work with the provinces to um, come up with a sort of national uh, structure around that, um, and we also know that they were scuppered from doing so. And we've heard that that was uh, mainly due to opposition from Ontario and Alberta. I'm noticing that like um, the like one of your healthcare recommendations that really struck out to me was the idea of a mechanism that would have the federal government tie funding to the provinces sort of in exchange for pollution reduction targets and some of the other pieces, financing zero emission vehicles, um, supporting like the kind of investments that you'd want a, a province to make. Um, uh, and it, it's 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 an interesting approach because yeah like yeah these actually on our last podcast we had a long conversation about how these sort of like federal provincial negotiations can really sort of take the wind out of the sails of like ambitious programs that need to roll out really really quickly. Yeah, it, it's a huge problem. It's funny. I I actually started writing a section um, that kind of went into all this in the report, but at some point. Like it was already a 60 page report. At some point you kind of just have to put your pen down. Um, but it's, 
it's certainly a problem. And I actually, I think it's probably a good takeaway for your listeners. Uh, a lot of the energy around environmental policy in this country uh, and the conversation around it gets directed at the federal government. And to some degree, that's with good reason. But provincial politics matters too. It matters a lot. Uh, municipal politics does as well. And yeah, until we get that decision back from the Supreme Court and have a, a better sense of what the parameters of the federal government's powers are in relation to the environment, um, and even after that, we're going to need to make sure that we have good provincial governments uh, all across the country that can be good partners in pushing forward uh, these these policy levers. And we just don't have that right now in certain provinces. So some stats that stuck out to me were about the healthcare system in particular, um, and that if global healthcare were a country, it would be the fifth highest carbon emitter in the world, that uh, Canada has the third highest per capita greenhouse gas emissions from healthcare, accounting for about 5% of total emissions, which, um, you know, 5% may not sound like a lot, but that makes it higher than, you know, some significant sectors that people talk about, things like, you know, air transportation, iron, steel, cement, things like that. Um, so obviously, uh, a sector that's important, but also one sort of squarely within the reach of the provincial governments. Um, so wondering if you could walk us through your thinking and recommendations about that sector in particular, you know, where do those emissions come from and sort of how could those be reduced in a responsible way? Sure. So the way that one of my co-authors, who's a physician, put it to me is that if we're going to advocate for climate action, we have to clean up our own house too. So, you know, as you say, healthcare is a significant driver of emissions and most of the GHG emissions from healthcare are the result of building energy use. Uh, hospitals in particular are really energy intensive buildings because many hospitals and healthcare campuses have huge footprints and are often the result of various additions made over many years. Um, so often their systems are outdated, uh, inefficient, uh, often not integrated with each other. So even if a new wing of a hospital has more efficient lighting or a better HVAC system, it often won't be integrated with the older wings and, and the hospital's energy performance will still be poor. Um, and then hospitals are often 24 seven environments and too often we're using energy to heat and light areas of the hospitals at times when they're not even in use. Uh, so we've recommended that the federal government work with provinces to mandate environmental standards for renovations and new healthcare facilities, uh, and also allow healthcare facilities to apply directly for green infrastructure funding. Uh, right now, hospitals are excluded from certain federal programs that apply to building retrofits generally. Uh, so we're recommending they rectify that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Robin. I uh, really appreciate having you on the podcast. If folks who might be listening to this are agreeing with what you're saying, we need to take action uh, on this stuff. Can you maybe give us a little bit more information about how they can uh, maybe find the report uh, and you know, maybe even better support its recommendations? Sure. So yeah, I, I mean, two things come to mind. Um, the first thing I can do is go to our website, which is cape.ca, C-A-P-E.ca. Uh, and it will be fairly obvious. Uh, you click one link, you're at a report, and then we have a page there where you can uh, download our report and also send it directly to your member of parliament. And uh, when you do so, you can send them a note, uh, just explain to them how important the, the recommendations of the report are to you and how important it is to you uh, that the federal government uh, spend their recovery funds in a way that helps transition to a sustainable economy. Um, and then a second thing that comes to mind because you're uh, an Ontario specific podcast is that, um, you know, the, the next election is coming up sooner than we think. And no matter what party you support, I, I would just say that it's important uh, that as those parties fill their rosters full of their MPP candidates, uh, that if you care about fighting climate action, that you, uh, you find 
um, potential MPPs who also want to fight climate change, and you organize with them, you support them. And, and you know, if we can uh, have a government and an opposition that uh, want to fight climate change, uh, and if the federal government has uh, a partner in Ontario to fight climate change, uh, Canada's performance on this is just going to be so much better. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Robin Edger for joining. Uh, it's a great report. Uh, I would highly recommend checking it out. Uh, we will be bringing you the news uh, on Friday, as always this week. In the meantime, don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. Uh, leave us a review, too, if you can on the iTunes store. That actually is very helpful in getting our podcast to more people. If you have not left a review in the iTunes store, leave us a review. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, get at us on Twitter at @OntarioLoud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. We love hearing your feedback. Ontario Loud is Grima Tower Kapoor, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Sam Andrew, and me, Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers, Naisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca and hit the Patreon link. Thank you for listening.